my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Rosebear here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November 9th, 2011. Okay, today is our light edition. I am in the middle of a huge writing project. My brain hurts. So I've been spending some time... Well, writing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result We've got to do the cleanup work. Now, one of the things we've been doing in our light editions is we've been working through a series of lectures presented by Dr. Adam Francisco. Uh, Dr. Francisco received his doctorate from Oxford University, and uh, he is, uh, well, he understands really not just Lutheran theology, but Lutheran theology in, in light of and, and compared with uh, Islam. And so he actually is uh, somebody who understands Islam very well. And we've been working through a series of lectures by Dr. Adam Francisco and taking a look at the uh, theology of Islam. And this is the last uh, uh, lecture in the series, uh, and it has to do with Islam in America. So this is, a, this is all about Islam in the United States. So uh, that's what we're going to listen to today, uh, normal edition of Fighting for the Faith, tomorrow and Friday, so you don't want to miss that. And so without any further ado, here is Dr. Adam Francisco. The last time we met, we had three classes that were shortened quite a bit because of different things. Um, and I covered the brief history of Islam and theology of Islam. And I think we ended off by briefly discussing what does all this mean for us? 
Um, today, I want to look at that question a little uh, more closely. In particular, I want to cover the issue of Islam in America. Please understand, I've made this distinction before. You're, you'll probably be tired of me making this distinction, but I think it's important to keep at the front of our minds that while I'm talking about Islam and its influence or its intrusion into lots of secular aspects of our life, um, we do need to keep this distinction between Islam and Muslims. Muslims should buy into the classic theology of Islam. Thankfully, not every Muslim does. Otherwise, we'd have an even greater problem on our hand. Um, but at the same time, we need to keep, while we need to make this distinction, we need to, I would say, as I've, I've put it before, take a very hard line against Islam and keep it at bay. In fact, uh, stay very active in ensuring that its, its law, its political ideology um, is removed from the, the public realm. Uh, that does not mean Christians are absolved of the responsibility and I would say even more privilege of uh, engaging Muslims and speaking the gospel to them. It's a very tight line we have to walk here. But let's start. I'm going to start our talk on Islam in America actually in Egypt in the late 1920s. I think there are lots of ways to talk about Islam in America and how it's grown and why it's making so many inroads into our public life. Um, I think the best way to understand, though, what's behind all of that, and there is, I'm not going to, I don't want to use the term conspiracy. Like I told you, I'm no conspiracy theorist, though people have accused me of it. Um, there is a pattern or a plan behind things. Um, and before I get moving, let me make one suggestion. I gave you a handout several weeks when we first did the, when we did the first three sessions, and it had some bibliography in it. I believe it had a, uh, a reference to a movie that I think is absolutely vital for viewing to understand why things are, are you know, what's behind everything. It's called The Third Jihad. It's a, I think the full length is two hours. You can get a free sample of it, a 30-minute sample of it on Google Videos. For those of you who are familiar with the Internet, I assume most of us are here. I'm not so familiar. Dr. Van Voris will tell you. But... Uh, 30 minutes, and it's done by, the great thing about this video is it's done by a very, we might say, liberal, uh, secular-minded or, or moderate-minded Muslim. So it's not some right-wing crank out there like myself um, trying to expose some sort of hidden conspiracy. It's a Muslim saying, to understand why things are going on the way they are, we have to understand this. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to cover will dovetail what's covered in that video. So let's go back to Egypt in 19, around 1928. A man named Hassan al-Banna and like-minded individuals looked around the Muslim world in the 20th century and came to the conclusion, like lots of Muslims have since, that, the, that Islamic civilization was in a state of decline and, in fact, defeat. For the Muslim mind, the 17th century, September 11, 1683, when Muslims were finally turned back at Vienna. That marks, if there is a particular day in their history, they will identify as a beginning of decline. That would be it. In the late 17th century, up until the middle of the 20th century, perhaps even presently, in their mind, the Western world has dominated Islam, has influenced its political, legal, and economic institutions, 
and is also right now influencing the theology or the ideology of Islam. I believe I mentioned some time ago, I'll um, drop the name again, a man named Abdulaziz Sahadina wrote a book just a couple years back entitled The Islamic Roots of Democratic Pluralism. Where, and he's a, he's a Western Muslim scholar teaching out of University of Virginia. He argues that the traditional ideology of Islam was a product of centuries of development, and it was largely, according to him, arbitrary. He says Muslims in the West can deconstruct historical Islam, that is completely alter Islam, and in its place reconstruct a new version of Islam that is kinder and gentler and everything else. Um, in order to make Islam relevant for life in the West. Abdulaziz is a very liberal-minded Muslim, uh, originally from Africa, a very uh, intelligent man. Um, his message has reached large audiences here in America. When he's in the Muslim world, he's not well-received. In fact, a prohibition on his teachings uh, was issued some years back, I believe around 1999, that says you cannot teach this kinder, gentler form of Islam, and that's not the exact verbiage, um, in the Muslim world because it's not Islam. But go ahead and teach it in the West. Um, when Muslims look at Abdulaziz and other liberal-minded Muslims in America, like Zudi Jasser, the man who does doc, or, uh, is the commentator on the Third Jihad, they see a Muslim that is being shaped by Western ideas, perhaps some, even some Christian ideas or Judeo-Christian ideas. Uh, so as Hassan al-Banna in, in Egypt not around in the 1920s looked at the Muslim world, it was in a state of defeat and it was dominated by the West. He, he gives birth to an organization known as the Muslim Brotherhood. You've probably at least heard of them on the news as the events back in February in Egypt started taking off. But the Muslim Brotherhood is, did not remain an Egyptian organization. It quickly span, or, uh, fanned out across the Muslim world and now is located in every, almost every Western country. All throughout Europe, even America has a, a presence of the Muslim Brotherhood of, of various forms uh, and entities. The Muslim Brotherhood had at its goal, as its goal, to restore or resurrect Islamic civilization, to defend and promote the integrity of Islam initially within the Muslim world. Uh, the way they started doing this was through education, uh, some social services, feeding the poor, providing uh, clothing and shelter to especially Muslims along the Nile River uh, in Egypt, but shortly after this uh, initial sort of local, uh, uh, this attempt to improve the local issues, the Muslim Brotherhood became much more global in its outlook. A couple decades later, as the Muslim uh, Brotherhood is developing, uh, is expanding, a man named Said Qutub, spelled Q-U-T-B, um, didn't take charge of the Muslim Brotherhood, but was quickly recognized as the leading thinker of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he lives through most of the 20th century until 1966, where he's executed by the Egyptian government for his, his Islamism. His claim that, this was Said Qutb's particular claim, that the entire world, including the Muslim world, because it's been so dominated by the West, and in his day and age, primarily the French and the British, 
but very shortly thereafter, America, the Muslim world had been corrupted. And the whole Muslim world is in a state, as well as the rest of the world, a state of jahiliya, or ignorance. It has turned its back in varying degrees against the light of Islam. And so Sayyid Qutub began formulating what we might call an ideological response to this. Um, you can read a number of works by Sayyid Qutub. Uh, he starts writing after he gets back from America. He was here from 1948 to about 1951 uh, on an uh, Egyptian-American-funded uh, fellowship to come to America to Greenlee Teachers College in Colorado to learn about American education. When he came to America, he was a relatively uh, secular-minded Egyptian Muslim. He gets here, uh, and from a writing he wrote shortly after he returns to Egypt called The America I've Seen, um, he becomes radicalized, we might say. That's the way the terminology we would use. He would say he became a proper Muslim. And he argued that America is absolutely morally, politically, economically, and religiously corrupt. And as he looks around his native Egypt, he sees that, and as well as surrounding countries, that more and more Muslim countries are coming under the influence of, varying, of different degrees of America and its foreign policy. So he writes a work eventually called Milestones, which is probably one of his most important books. If you want to get into Said Qutub's head real quickly, uh, in about 80 pages, you're, you can read this book. And he puts forward this thesis that the whole world is in a state of ignorance. Muslims has, have as their God-given duty the responsibility to restore uh, an outpost of integral Islam, not in the Middle East necessarily, but wherever they can. If it's in America... If it's in Europe, if it's in Afghanistan, the Sudan, wherever Muslims strive hard, and the ter Arabic term for strive is jihad, engage in jihad, um, they should begin trying to restore the integrity of Islam. In particular, to restore the, the lost Darul Islam. We talked about this a long time ago, maybe over a month ago now, that in the classic Muslim view of things, there is the Darul Islam, that is the house or abode or realm of Islam, where the majority of the people are Muslim. The politics, the economics, the law, the mores, and everything else are Islamic. And that domain has as its task, as its collective duty, that is everybody's responsible for it, expanding and bringing the, as they would put it, the light of Islam to the domain of war or the domain of the struggle. That, that is territory outside of the domain of Islam. Uh, this, is, this sort of worldview is what got Qutub in trouble. It's classically Islamic, but please understand in the 20th century, uh, including today, most of these countries in the Middle East or the Muslim world, Muslim, real austere Muslims, don't view these countries as Islamic. They limit the Sharia, that is Islamic law, to domestic issues, marriage, inheritance laws, um, divorce, uh, things like that. When it comes to major, your public laws, this is a fusion of Sharia and Western ideas. And so when, bin, or when uh, Saeed Qutub begins saying that uh, Muslims need to return to the integrity of Islam and eventually implement Sharia 
all across the board in terms of the legal infrastructure and, and um, uh, replace the existing governments with Islamic governments, he's seen as a subversive in Egypt, as has the Muslim, or the Muslim Brotherhood has been seen as a subversive entity throughout most of the history of Egypt and the, the Muslim world. So he's executed in 1966. His ideas, um, however, don't die with him. Um, he, while he was in prison, he wrote a commentary on the Quran, which is currently being translated into English. I believe they're at volume 20, and they're not even at three-quarters of the way through the Quran. It's a massive text. If you were to go into an Islamic bookstore uh, anywhere in English-speaking lands, I would be willing to bet that if they have a Quran in stock, or I mean a, a commentary on the Quran in stock, it would be Said Qutb's commentary. His ideas are extremely influential. Um, also influential, or his, uh, his influence will also reach, or perhaps we might say inform um, and motivate his brother, a man named Muhammad Qutb. Uh, who was able to get out of Egypt as the suppression of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, increased and eventually wound up in Saudi Arabia. Um, taught in various universities, no, most notably the University of Mecca, where he was a tutor to a young Osama bin Laden. And it's, it, we don't know that Osama bin Laden read Said Qutb. There's not a whole lot of evidence. He certainly knew who he was but he certainly was influenced by Muhammad Qutb, who was his tutor, and so therefore the ideas of Said Qutb make their way into the mind of uh, Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden will begin to alter the ideas a bit to, begin to justify a global uh, jihad. Rather than focusing on establishing as your first order of business a domain of Islam, just simply engaging in total warfare, total terroristic type of warfare. Um, Around, as we get to, you know, Said Qutb's put to death in 1966, his brother Muhammad moves to Saudi Arabia, and we don't know exactly when his biography is, is notoriously complicated, and there's not a whole lot of evidence from which we could actually draw up a proper a biography. He'd have to write one for himself, and he's not going to. He's been in hiding for quite some time. Um, but probably in the 1970s or 80s, he makes his way to Saudi Arabia. Um, Moving from the Middle East to America, in the 1980s, you have a, or, uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood begin to emigrate to America under the umbrella of persecution. They're, in order to gain a green card and eventually citizenship, they argue to the immigration board that they are persecuted for their beliefs in the Muslim world, and so we welcome, especially after 1965, welcome them with, with open arms, uh, not really paying attention to why... They're persecuted over in Egypt and other places. Um, um, one man in particular, though there are a whole bunch of them, uh, Muhammad um, Akram, uh, wrote a report in 1991 about a meeting that had taken place throughout the 1980s um, under the heading of the Shura Council, um, a meeting comprised of American Muslims, most notoriously in 1987, where they talked about and started strategizing uh, and detailing the aims or the goals of the Brotherhood in America. The document he wrote was from 1991. It summarizes the Muslim Brotherhood in America's worldview or view for America. You can get this document online. 
Um, it's entitled an explanatory memorandum of the strategic goals for the group. Um, it, it'll be the first thing that pops up if you type this into Google. And it gives you a window into exactly how at least a particular group of Muslims uh, view their role in America. The document wasn't for public consumption for a long time until 2007, when an organization known as the Holy Land Foundation was brought on trial, eventually, just recently in fact, found guilty for funneling funds, millions of dollars, under the, uh, the title of ch Islamic Charities to Hamas, so it could buy rockets and lob them into Israel. And um, but we learned of it around 2007, and if you read it, it is very eye-opening. Uh, these, these folks who are involved in this meeting, these meetings throughout the 1980s, make it very clear they see their uh, role in America as a process of Islamic settlement within America. And they talk about how um, eventually it is the goal of the Muslim Brotherhood to sabotage and destroy not just America, but Western civilization from within. They know um, as do most Islamist organizations, that they simply cannot compete with the, mil the American military machine. And so they begin suggesting that perhaps our jihad, as they put it, our struggle, will take a different means. Uh, and the term they use is a cultural jihad. Uh, to begin implanting, or not implanting, that sounds too conspiratorial, but begin encouraging Muslims to become more active in America, to begin establishing organizations in America so that it can begin the process of the civilizational jihadist process. To event, the short-term goal is to make Islam an alternative religion or an alternative ideology in America. Uh, as a long-term goal, it's to get Muslims involved in politics, economics, and everything else in America so that slowly, very slowly, with a long-determined end in mind, change the socio-cultural and political uh, landscape in America. This, I know, sounds conspiratorial. It's in the document. Read it for yourself. Now, how influential is the Muslim Brotherhood? Are they all that significant of a challenge, or we, I think probably threat is more accurate? If you look around America, look at all the Muslim organizations, you're not going to find that I know of anyone saying that they're Ali Kwan, the Brotherhood. This mem explanatory memorandum lists, however, and this was the thing that really shocked people, 29 organizations that are either friendly organizations or organizations that were started by the Muslim Brotherhood to sort of disassociate themselves just by their very title. The organizations have names like Council on... Well, actually, that, that organization is not named in the explanatory memorandum because it had a different name at that time. But Council on American Islamic Relations, Islamic Society of North America, Muslim Student Associations, there are 400 of these in North America, um, Islamic Circle of North America, and everything else. Um, we're all identified at least as organizations that have the same goals in mind of the Muslim Brotherhood if not being founded by the Muslim Brotherhood. Most of these organizations are still around today. They're very active, um, and I think in the subsequent decades we're going to see them become even more active because they've been very successful in accomplishing what they've wanted to accomplish. If you look at the numbers 
um, of Muslims in America. It's hard to determine just how many there are, but some probably a conservative estimate is about 7 million. Uh, if, you, if you want to judge, though, the activity of Islam or Muslims in America, I think the best way to, to look at it is look at the, the mosques we have around America, how quickly they've grown in number and what they're involved in. Uh, back in the 1980s, there were less than 100 mosques in America. 1994, there were about 965, I think is the number. Um, just a little more than a decade after that, that study was done. Now, around nine, uh, 2009, they determined, somebody determined, I think the Pew Research Forum determined there were about anywhere between 2,500 to 3,000 mosques in America. Of course, they have every right to, to build a mosque wherever they want, in, in a sense. We could argue about that later, um, off record. Um, but when, when they set up a mosque, what a mosque, what we think a mosque does is just simply provide a place for Muslims to pray. And indeed, that's what they typically do at the mosque. But a mosque is created um, to bring Muslims together so that they can be engaged publicly, so that they can strive. That's the term they like, they like to use, which is simply jihad in Arabic, um, to, um, to bring is the light of Islam into the public realm, to influence local politics and lo local um, um, activities such that they are brought uh, within the circle of Islam. They haven't been all that successful in doing that. Uh, if you go to Dearborn, and Chicago, certainly you'll see Islam is extremely influential in, in, a lot, in, in those communities. Um, but more and more each day, they become more and more outspoken and aggressive uh, in, in trying to implement their goals. Uh, going back to the numbers yet again, if you look at Islam in America in terms of the number of Muslims, after 2001, uh, demographic polls suggest that as Islam, Islam has grown in terms of numbers through childbirth, immigration, but also, I think, worryingly, um, has grown by leaps and bounds by conversion. I'm not one out there to say that America's the, or Islam's the fastest growing religion. I, I really don't know. I think um, there are other religions that are growing quite fast. Uh, but it certainly is growing. 30% of its growth, however according to surveys and polls, suggest that this is by conversion primarily of students on college campuses and especially African Americans, for whatever reason, in the prison system. Um, with the growth of Islam in America and, its, and the, the, uh, with Muslims uh, involving themselves or, or going off to institutions of higher education in America and in particular going into the military and winding up in prisons. This has led to a new uh, concern, and that is the concern of providing spiritual care for Muslims in these various places. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, yeah, the question for the, for the rec or for the video, the question concerns you draw attention to Persian Muslim women in particular and what role they have in all of this. They have no role in it, thankfully. Um, you will find especially Persians, I think we could add a lot of Turks, um, are we, what we could call um, secular Muslims, cultural Muslims. 
Uh, you mentioned yourself that they're not in favor of all this Islamizing of things uh, because they are, they are in the process through various means of changing or altering what it means to be Muslim. Thankfully, they are. Um, they are seen by the Muslim world, however, as we see, say, for example, those Mormons who drink beer, Jack Muslims. They wouldn't use that term. <laughs> but uh, they're um, Muslims who have been Americanized. And those are the types of Muslims though, you can have, as a Christian, a conversation with. You're not going to run into a whole lot of... Um, uh, um, you'll run into theological problems, to be sure, but you're not going to encounter a lot of uh, sort of uh, real harsh resistance. They're open to talking. So that's a, that's a reality to take note of, uh, that there are a lot of Muslims who are, I don't know the number or the percentage, but there are those out there that are growing increasingly uncomfortable with this, what historians call the resurgence of Islam that started many people I dated in 1979 when the Iranian revolution took off um, and all the um, Muslims around the Muslim world from as far as the Philippines to Morocco and everywhere in between began going to Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union. That marks the beginning of the resurgence of Islam as you see it in concrete terms. Um, getting back to the... Uh, um, the Islamization of aspects of America. One more thing I want to mention as our time is coming to an end here is um, that's a little more concerning for Christians is the what I'll call, and I know this is hyperbole, but the Islamizing of Christianity. Um, and some, many of you maybe remember from 2006, the uh, Pope Benedict gave that uh, famous lecture at Regensburg, the University of Regensburg where he simply quoted a Byzantine emperor saying that essentially that Islam hadn't brought any new ideas to the world. All it brought that was new was violence. And then to prove to us that Islam is not violent, nuns and, and uh, non-Muslims were killed across the Muslim world. Uh, a year, or literally an exact year after that, Muslims got together, uh, high-profile Muslims of all sorts of different um, uh, stripes got together, 138 of them, in Jordan, a city named Amman, Jordan, and met over the course of a, a couple days, if not weeks, and came to the conclusion that, uh, and we don't know the, we don't have the exact details because they're not going to provide us with the minutes of the meeting, but they came to the conclusion that Muslims across the world need to extend a what they might call an olive branch to the Christian world. And they produced a document called A Common Word Between Us and You. If you get an Arabic version of it, it's, a, it's a, a call to a common word between us and you. And what the document says, you can go online. There's a whole website devoted to this, this uh, what's become very quickly an international Muslim-Christian dialogue. It argues that Christians and Muslims comprise a half of the world's population about a half of the world's population. It behooves, therefore, Christians and Muslims to get together and engage in at least some common discourse as they think about common concerns of theirs um, in order to bring down some of the hostility between Muslims and Christians across the world. And it, it continues, in, in, or it goes on for over a dozen pages and argues that Muslims and Christians actually can engage in this sort of discourse because there are some, there's some common 
there are common platforms within each religion. And it identifies two. One is both religions are concerned for love of God, as it says, and also love of neighbor. Um, of course, it doesn't talk about the fact that both religions see their gods very differently. And in fact, we would say, I think all of us would say here, that the God of Islam is in no way the God of Christianity. And it doesn't talk about the, the, the minor detail that in Islam uh, they certainly do have for love for neighbor, especially their Muslim neighbor. And if it's a non-Muslim neighbor, they love them so much that they want to, to cause them to submit to Islam in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, in any case, it goes on, and then they, after they've, they've written it, they send it out to the Pope, patriarchs of the Orthodox churches, general secretaries, presidents of, every, of Christian churches everywhere. And very quickly, Christians responded. Literally, within a day, the president of the ELCA had responded, and a whole host of other church leaders um, the response of, of most of Christianity is best summarized in a document written by the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, which was published in the New York, New York Times a little less than a month that the Common Word document came out. And what it is is a document purportedly written by Christian leaders across the board. And it argues that, or starts off by saying, we thank the Muslim world for approaching us with this olive branch. Before we get into the details of how we want to respond, first we want to apologize for the Crusades and the excesses on the war on terror, uh, and then goes on and talks about how essentially they agree with what the Muslim world has, has said or suggested or argued in the Common Word document. Uh, but also they, start, they certainly assume that Christians and Muslims have the same God. Uh, despite what you might think, that's a fairly common assumption in what we might call liberal Protestantism. It's pretty widespread. Um, but it also goes on and starts referring to Muhammad as the prophet Muhammad. Now, I don't think these authors were thought that they were saying that they believe there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. But that's the way the Muslim world received this, this response, that these Christians had essentially submitted to the demands of Islam. They hadn't become Muslims, but they are in a process of sub, or a state of submission. If you look at the, the, the original document, a common word between us and you, and you understand it through the lens of the Quran and through the motives of historic Islam, you quickly learn that the language of the letter comes from Quran chapter 3, verse 64 and following, where the context is Muhammad's telling the Muslims, or Allah is telling Muhammad, how Muslims should pr approach the non-Muslim world. Quran 3.64 says, has Allah saying, Call them to a common word and say to them, let us come to a common word or a common platform between us and you. You Christians and Jews debate about the religion of Abraham as if you both represent the religion of Abraham. Abraham was not a Christian or a Jew. He was a Hanif Musliman, an upright or an Orthodox Muslim. And so this, that, from that passage, if you look at the historic Quranic commentaries, when they, as they talk about it, this is the, the passage uh, that sort of outlines the program of Islamic da'wah. Da'wah is sort of, it's not synonymous, but it parallels Christian missionary activity or Christian proselytization. Uh, and the, 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 the means is that you're to call the world or call your neighbor, or call non-Muslim entities to Islam. 
call them to embrace or submit to Islam. The way it worked out historically is as the Muslim governments started expanding, especially the first hundred years of Islam, but certainly following, they would issue a letter to non-Muslim entities saying, we write to you to call you to submit to Islam. And then it explains, if you don't, we're going to attack. Doesn't mean Muslims are, there's some sort of secretive Muslim organization putting together a black ops army that wants to, talk, to attack America or Europe. Nobody's ever suggested that. But it, what, what it does mean is this letter is certainly a letter that fits within Islamic tradition and is not some sort of syncretizing letter where Muslims are saying Christians and Muslims worship the same God and are doing the same things. This is a letter of Dawah, as it says in the Arabic version of it. And so you get, what, the way I see things, and I could certainly be wrong, I'm open to being uh, proven wrong, is that you have both religions, Islam and Christianity, claim they're, they're monotheistic religions. On one side you have Islamic monotheism, which is more like a Unitarian monotheism. God is one in essence and one in person, such that the Quran says at least a half a dozen times that he cannot, nor has he ever had a son. And then you have Christian monotheism, that is Trinitarian monotheism, which we all confessed in the Athanasian Creed uh, this morning. Actually, I didn't because my daughter would kept on turning the pages and I don't have the creed memorized. Uh, <laughs> but what you see is a, at least, not in our circles to be sure, but in liberal Protestantism and others, you see a moving away from the d a distinct Trinitarian monotheistic tradition to a more Unitarian monotheistic tradition, which is much closer to Islam than it is classic Christianity. So what's a Christian to do with all this? We have three minutes. I'm told 11.35 is the absolute end. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think on, on one hand, like I said when we first started talking, we have to take a hard line against the, the intrusion of Islam in our public life. At the same time, we have to keep this distinction very clear that not all Muslims are involved in this, and we also, as Christians, um, need to see Muslims as we should see them. They've got the same problems as us. They're dirty, rotten sinners. Uh, and just like John wrote, Christ did not just die for us, but he died for the sins of the world. So um, our American Christians have it, find themselves in a very peculiar situation. And um, to put in a little prop for for classic Lutheranism, I think the the teaching on the two kind or the two realms or the two kingdoms, the doctrine of the two kingdoms, um, really do help us understand how we're to view the challenge of Islam um, and and Muslims in America. That is, on one hand, when it comes to public, secular, civil life, we have to take this hard line against Islam as American citizens. All the while recognizing we're Christians and we know the greater reality is that um, Christ died for those Muslims as well. So it means that while we have to engage Islam in the public realm, we have to also keep ourselves open to any opportunities to uh, speak the gospel to Muslim people. Because that, that gospel is for them as well. We're at 1134. There's time for, for at least one question. <laughs> Or a, a, about a third of a question. You can say the question, then time's out. Very short. Where does Louis Farrakhan fit into this picture? Louis Farrakhan is a member of, still a member of the Nation of Islam. I don't know the exact dates of when that organization was born. Um, 
I want to say the 1950s, but maybe even earlier. It's a not an Islam, despite its name, it's not Islamic. In fact, there was a mass exodus out of the nation of Islam uh, a number of years ago, led by um, Wallace Fard Muhammad, I believe is his name, to real Islam. If, you, you know, if you've seen the Spike Lee movie, uh, Malcolm X, you know he starts in, or if you know the biography of Malcolm X, uh, you know he starts in the nation of Islam, but soon learns that that's not Islam, and enters Sunni Islam. There, is, there has been this move away from the nation of Islam. The, the organization itself is dwindling big time. You've got a few of their mosques in, um, in Chicago, southern Chicago, but that's about it. It's dying down. Louis Farrakhan's still the, the major spokesperson for it. They believe in odd things. It's a black nationalist racist movement. Uh, Farrakhan, I believe himself, thinks that he's been uh, sucked up into an alien spaceship at least one or two times. Um, those aren't Islamic beliefs. Um, hate to say it. So. <laughs> Uh, any other questions? We, or, yes. uh, yeah, for the video, do, does the average Lutheran believe that the God of Islam, Allah, and the God of Christianity are two different gods? I, I, you'd have to ask the, the Lutherans. If you asked our crowd, we'd say absolutely they're not the same thing. I, um, there are some who will approach things a little differently, and, and with the recognition, you know, the Bible tells us all people have natural knowledge of God of some sort. So the individual Muslim, not the institution of Islam, the individual Muslim, as well as everybody else out there, if they're thinking about God, they're thinking about something higher. When they start filling in all the details and developing a theology, it becomes an idolatrous theology. It's not uh, a description of the real God. But the initial intuition, if you will, that there's something higher, is initially, for that split second, I think, the right trajectory, but it's immediately... Uh, screwed up, if I can be that crass. Romans 1, 18 through 25 talks about how, about this process where eventually people start worshiping uh, created things, creepy crawly things, I think is one way you could translate that. Because um, they start filling in that natural knowledge of God with man-made ideas about God. And they start creating God in the image of creation of, in some way, shape, or form. I think that's, we could say that certainly about Islam. Anyway, I think uh, we're, we're way past time. Hmm. Informative. It, it, and that one was a little bit different. Um. No. Very informative. Good stuff to know. And uh, you know, always, I'm glad to hear from Doctor Francisco that he's not the only one out there who thinks conspiratorially. Anyway, so what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>